Shalom and welcome back to Scripture Central. Come follow me. I'm Lynn Hilton Wilson, and I'm thrilled to be able to talk about the Epistle of James this week for our Scripture study. We have finished the Pauline Corpus, that largest author that we have in the New Testament epistles. And the next largest book that we have is James, and that's why he got second. This beautiful book has six chapters, and it applies the law of the gospel. It connects faith and work and revelation, but it does so much more. It also brings in Christ and testifies of Christ. It is a gem. It's a wonderful book. And I hope that as you prayerfully study it throughout this week, that you can feel Christ's presence. I also want to let you know that if you want my handouts, I have all my sources and a lot more information and charts. It should be attached to my video, or you go to Book of Mormon Central Archives, the New Testament, to come follow me, and you'll be able to find my handout there. The book of James is debated on authorship. Which James are we talking about? It appears to be written in the early 60s, but this is not Peter, James, and John. This is James, the brother of the Lord. We know he loved the Old Testament. We have lots of Old Testament citations. Chapter 2 has four of them. Verses 8, 11, and 23 are quoting all the Torah, Leviticus, Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Genesis. And then when we get to James 4, we, he quotes Proverbs. But the whole book is organized in a manner that is um, really trying to prove a point. It's a collection of exhortations. It's a little bit like the book of Proverbs like that telling you this is good, this is good, this is good. But then he mentions 20 points and he gives arguments for each of these 20 points. James chapter one has 10 of those. And then the next few chapters, he argues those 10 over and over again. One of the commentaries I read on this book said that the book of James is the most socially conscientious writing in the New Testament. And it is a very conscientious uh, book regarding our social behaviors and how we need to treat others. It gives a lot of details on stuff. It's just terrific. Chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. So we're first told that it's James. But in the New Testament, we have three different James. Actually, James was a very common name at that time because it means Jacob in, in Hebrew or Aramaic. You know, they use that. James is the Greek, or Jacobus would have been the Greek version. It's the English version of it. But twice in the New Testament, we have a list of all the half-brothers of the Savior. Do you remember Mary and Joseph have many other children? According to Matthew chapter 13 and Mark chapter 6, they list them. Their names are consistent. As long as you, Josie can be Joseph, then they're all consistent. But the Lord had four half-brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. So you can see the common names there with the apostles as well. And then both of these two places say that he has sisters, but their names are not listed. So we just knew that they were that he had little sisters, or we know it's at least two because it's plural. And as you recall back in Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6 to 7, when Paul is talking about the resurrection, he identifies people that saw the Lord. And he says in verse 6 to 7, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. That's in the NIV. And then he appeared to James. This must have been such an interesting relationship because we're told in the book of John that Jesus's brothers did not believe in him. This is the gospel of John. They, they didn't follow him during his ministry. They did not believe he was the son of God. And um, after the Lord appeared, 
to Mary of Magdala and to the women and to Peter, it says he came to James. Now, the Lord knew that he needed to be a great leader in Christianity. So he came and told his brother and James becomes a powerful leader in the church. He's never called an apostle. Sometimes people refer to him as the bishop in Jerusalem or a leader in Jerusalem, but he is often a leader. Do you remember back a few weeks ago when we studied Galatians in chapter two, verse nine, the author is referred to as pillars of the church. James, Cephas, and John. Cephas is Peter. That's, that's the rock. James is first, and then Peter, and then John. And these were the great leaders of the church at the time. This is not um, Peter, James, and John. They were the leaders during the Lord's ministry, and they were the ones that went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they were the ones that were separated in the Garden of Gethsemane. But the reason why we know it's not them is James, that James, the son of Zebedee and Salome, that James, the brother of John the Beloved, he was the first martyrdom. Well, if you don't count John the Baptist, John Baptist and Jesus were the first martyrs. But of the of the 12 apostles, James is the first martyr. And he's killed very early. And then um, I guess Stephen was before him, but he still killed very early uh, that son of Zebedee. And so now in the rest of the epistles, the James that is being referred to is always this brother of the Lord. When we look at the historical records, Josephus says that this James, the son of Joseph and Mary, was stoned to death in about 62 AD. We're not positive, but the record that Josephus leaves us in the Antiquities of the Jews says that the high priest, Ananias, assembled the Sanhedrin of the judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James. And then he skips down a little bit and he says, and some others, he delivered them to be stoned. So if we're going by Josephus's record, uh, this letter needs to be written before 62 AD. And remember, the temple is finished about 62, 63. And then the temple is destroyed between 68 and 70. And the land is left desolate after 70 AD. So um, the Lord removed his people before that great destruction of Jerusalem. Most of the Christians had been called to leave Jerusalem earlier. They followed their prophet. They left. They were not there for that horrific destruction. Um, and But James was taken home to his Lord. Let's just look at an outline of the whole book before we dive into its details. There's five chapters. He starts out, of course, with his greetings. And then he gives this eternal view of patience and, and trial, just like Paul used to talk about Lot. And that's because the saints are being persecuted and they do have trials. And they're saying, hey, we became Christians. Why is life still hard? Well, most people address that and it's very helpful. Chapter one also talks about the need to resist sin. In order to receive God's crown, we've got to resist sin. Talks about what pure religion is. This is verses 19 to 27, you know, we've got to listen and love and, and repent. And, and chapter two starts by the need to live the law of the gospel, to avoid partiality, avoid being kind just to the rich. And um, we've got to live not only the law of the gospel and mercy and develop our faith, but then in chapter three, he says, I just don't want you talking about these things. I want you to, to live it. He talks about avoiding contention, and to be wise. In chapter four, he really denounces worldliness. He says it's the enemy of God. And then in chapter five, he talks about the warning of the corrupt and the rich and that we need to be patient through our sufferings. So he goes all the way through. Now let's go a little more slowly and touch on each verse. 
that is um, a little bit tricky. I don't do the verses that I think are pretty simple to understand. But he starts out with an interesting introduction. James 1.1, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. Now, do you remember um, in about 721 AD, the Assyrians come through and take the northern tribes of Israel um, captive. And many of those are scattered across the entire Roman Empire by over the next 700 years. And some of them are not there, but many are scattered abroad. And we find different members of different tribes living in all places. Paul himself was from Benjamin, living in Tarsus. And Anna is from Asher. You know, so we've got these 12 tribes scattered abroad. But we also have the southern tribes that were in Babylon in 600 BC. They were taken captive. And only about one-sixth of the priesthood holders came back from Babylon when they were building the temple in, under um, Zerubbabel. Um, and you read about that in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. So where did the rest go? If only one-sixth came back to Jerusalem, where are all these tribes of Israel? Well, according to James, and this is a good record, <laughs> they are scattered abroad. I believe this also can refer to those of us in the latter days who believe that there was people taken as far away as the New World, as the American continents, that Israelites have been scattered by the Lord's hand from the very um, othermost parts of the earth. There are many, as he calls them, sheep who are scattered and his flock. He also used the analogy of the olive tree, the orchard, and they're cut down and taken in many different places. James chapter 2 in the KJV has some changes from the Joseph Smith translation. It starts out, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into, it says, diverse temptations, <laughs> King James. So count it a joy when, you have temp when you're tempted. I do not think that is right, and neither did Joseph Smith. <laughs> he changed it. He said, count it a joy when you have afflictions. I like the NIV here too. It says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. The NIV always gets the gender right. Remember, brethren is usually the Greek word that meant disciples, active church members. And so the NIV switches that over. Consider it a pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials, and skipping down to verse three, because the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So when our faith is being tested, it's like weightlifting. You know, we're, we're doing our repetitions. We are getting stronger and stronger. And the things that were hard as a child, as a mature Christian or as a young convert, or as a mature in our testimonies and our faith in Jesus Christ, they are no longer stumbling blocks. Our faith, though, must be tried. We are here to grow our faith. And this is a blessing to grow our faith. And so he starts out that way. Verse 5 is a very important verse in the Restoration, and it became very important to our prophet Joseph. It reads, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and it braideth not, and it shall be given him. So James is encouraging the saints not to rely only on their mental capabilities, on their society, on their culture, what people around them dictate. And that's where James had such experience because he fell into that trap of saying, Jesus isn't the son of God. He's my brother. He knew that the son of God came to him through revelation to testify of truth. So James says, when he says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. He is speaking from such personal experience. 
He says, I was wrong. I was deceived by my culture, by my mind, by the devil. But when I asked of God, I had it revealed to me. And he learned who his brother was, that his brother was the great Jehovah, the creator of the earth. Now, this verse was used in upstate New York by ministers. And Joseph heard it somewhere. We know that Joseph's family had devotionals every morning and every night. In Lucy's writing and in Joseph's writing and in other people who had come to visit the family, they read from their Bible. Now, do you remember up in Vermont, the family lives far away from other people. They don't have a lot of, of, of churches built in Vermont early on in, because it's a new state in 1791, you know. And when he comes to upstate New York, it's, it's only been inhabited for 20 years because they have just started moving the Western population past the Appalachian Mountains. And so um, the families had scriptural devotionals. Uh, they read their scriptures every day. But by the time they get to upstate New York, Joseph and his family are thrown into what they call the burned over district. It was referred to that because it was burned over by all these itinerant preachers and the Holy Ghost came through like a tinderbox and got everybody excited. And unfortunately, some of them were not excited by the Holy Ghost. They were excited by counterfeit spirits and barking and jerking. And it was an enormous time of reformations and camp meetings and revivals that just saturated a 20, 30 year period in the early 1800s in upstate New York. But the reason why I wanted to emphasize that is there was a man named George Lane. In the history of the church, we have these letters from Oliver Cowdery to W.W. Phelps in 1834. Oliver says, George Lane was a presiding elder in the Methodist Church, and he visited Palmyra as vicinity, the vicinity. But Elder Lane was a talented man possessing a good share of liter literary endowments and apparent humility. And there was a great awakening and excitement of religion. Well, when you go back and look at Elder Lane's writings, he includes James chapter one, verse five. And so we wonder, did Joseph go to a camp meeting and hear this? Well, Joseph said he went to camp meetings. And Lucy said Joseph went to a lot of camp meetings because he sold the family's goods. And Lucy and the girls and anyone else would make some cakes and they'd made their own form of, they made their own beer and they would sell them at these camp meetings, at these revivals. And Joseph would often take the family cart and sell them. Remember, he was still recovering from his leg surgery. Three and four years later, he got it at age eight. They moved down at age 11. He's still recovering from that leg surgery. And so as all these revivals were happening in the family would send him to sell because he wasn't as strong as his big brothers and others to, um, to these camp meetings. So Joseph was at many of them. Now, William Smith is Joseph's little brother who's not the most reliable source. In fact, he is unreliable. He's a problem. He's a problem all the time. But he does record. Joseph heard this from one of the itinerant preachers. Whoever Joseph heard it from, whether he was reading it with his family or he heard it in a sermon, it impenetrated his heart. He studied these things deeply according to his history. And it says in James chapter one, verse six, that he has to ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven in the wind and tossed. So how do we act in faith? How do we ask in faith? How do we not be deceived? So many people in the second great awakening in Joseph's time were deceived. Joseph wanted to learn how to ask in faith. 
And interestingly, the first revelations that Joseph receives chronologically, once the first vision has occurred and, and he's starting the translation, the first ones before the translation, before the priesthood, before anything else, teach him how to identify the spirit. Teach him how to ask in faith. You look at section six, you have to study it out in your mind. It's section eight, chapter nine, verse seven through nine. It's in your mind and in your heart. These first few sections of the Doctrine and Covenants are almost a handbook on how to f- access personal revelation. And you've got to believe, it says in chapter five. And then you, this is the spirit of revelation, and it's just a soft, quiet nudge. And it's how Moses crossed the Red Sea, we're told. And God says that he will answer faith-filled prayers. And I am a witness of that. And many times I have had to pray for days and weeks and sometimes years to understand those answers. But I believe that as section six says, every time you ask, I give you instruction. He may not be giving me the answer, but he is guiding me. He's trying to get me where I'm supposed to be to understand. This is a powerful message. If ye ask in faith, nothing wavering. Moving ahead now to chapter 1, verse 12, we read in the Joseph Smith translation, Blessed is the man that resisteth temptation. Now the KJV says, blessed is the man who endureth. Totally different meaning. Joseph says, absolutely not. We are not supposed to endure temptation. We are to resist temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. So may we pray every day to resist temptation. Do you remember in the Lord's Prayer that he gave as an example when the uh, disciples came to him and said, teach us how to pray? And he said, "Um, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Not only do we need to say that in our private prayers, but we need to say it in our family prayers in behalf of those that we love, our community. uh, Help them to stay away from temptation. Send more angelic help. Verse 13, I want to read in the BSB translation. It says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Now, I'm so grateful for this verse because all throughout the King James translation, starting in Genesis, you know, we have this idea that God tempts us. Remember, um, the Pharaoh is tempted by God, according to the translation there. And But James sets it completely clear. No, no, no. God is not doing the tempting. We have an adversary who is busy at work. And in verse 14, it says, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desires, he is lured away and enticed. And that is how the satanic forces work. They lure us away. They catch us. They trap us. They're counterfeits. Um, We have to know who our enemy is in order to know what he's doing. And we see it all through the Old Testament and the New Testament, even though the word devil is not mentioned in the Old Testament, we don't get a lot of it until uh, later. In the restoration, we are blessed with an enormous view of understanding who the adversary is, starting right from the first vision, right when Joseph is applying James chapter one, verse five and six, the devil overpowers him and tries to stop him from praying. Whenever you don't feel like praying, remember Joseph. When you don't feel like praying, you need to get on your knees and pray even more. James chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 reads in the NIV, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above. I hope that rang a bell in your ear. It sounds just like the book of Moroni. All that is good comes from God. 
And we get it right here in James. Don't, don't be deceived that these are your own ideas. Don't be deceived if you come up with something brilliant that fits. All that is good is coming from God. And all that wants to take us from God is motivated by the adversary. Now we get into that section that I mentioned earlier, the pure religion, the law of the Lord. James 1, chapters 19 through 27, talk about how we need to listen and love and repent and do. I'll start reading right away from verse 19, and this is in the NIV translation. Everyone, so it's not just men, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, and get rid of all moral filth and evil. Now, if you skip down a little bit in the King James, it says all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. (laughs) I love that word. But going back to the NIV, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. If something, if God has planted, if there has been a seed, if the spirit has touched our heart, we have got to nourish it. We've got to water it. We water it with our prayer. We water it with our scripture study. We water it with going to church. We water it with service. And when we water it, things can grow. And he's begging them here to apply Alma 32 about the word, nurturing the word. Continuing on in James chapter one, verse 22, in this beautiful section on pure religion, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving your own selves. The gospel is a gospel of action. You know, it's, it's one thing to be able to um, fall on our knees at the end of the day and to feel the spirit in general conference. But the Lord is calling us to be his servants. He needs us to teach our primary classes and go next door and help those neighbors and to be an example of the believers when we're at work. I love verse 26. It's such a great image. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. This is a constant challenge um, to bridle our tongue, bite our tongue if we are going to say anything unkind or untrue. And as an animal, specifically a horse, that was the war animal, I guess it would have been a donkey or something that wore the bridle, a mule, is guided by that little turn. May we as Christians, use our Savior, use the Holy Ghost to bridle our tongue. I pray all the time, please stop me from saying unkind things. Please give me a prompting from the Spirit before I offend someone. Um, The natural man and the self-centeredness takes over all too often, and, and we desperately need to pray that we can control our words. Verse 27 has another Joseph Smith translation change that I'd like to read from that one. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the vices of the world. The vices of the world is the JST change there. We live in a world where so many are in need. We have fewer orphans in some of our communities, but we have many that need spiritual fathers. We have many children that need good examples, and we have many who are lonely and in need, whether you are around a lot of people or not. Moving on now to chapter two, the NIV reads, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you must not show favoritism. This is a gem of a verse. We do not show favoritism. And I see my world becoming the poorer are poorer and the richer are richer. And that is the antithesis of what a Christian should be. The Christians need to share 
and to give and to live the law of consecration. Do all we can to build the kingdom of God. Um, and if we're doing that, we don't have first class seats and standing room only. You know, we need to allow to be in our words and our thoughts and our actions to not show favoritism to the rich and the poor. He continues on now for the next nine verses of chapter two to talk about the need to, for having no partiality. He even says in verse nine with the NIV, if you show favoritism, you sin. So many times in the legal world, in um, the challenges of, of incarceration in our country, the rich get off and the poor are put in prison. This is wrong. And James is speaking against it. James chapter 2, verse 10 has a small Joseph Smith translation, but it's still a little bit tricky to understand. This is a hard verse. For whosoever shall save in one point, keep the whole law, he is guilty of all. Well, that is confusing. I think what he's saying is if we break a commandment, we are again sinners. We have got to repent. He's talking about the law of the gospel, and the law of the gospel is coming back to Christ and constantly repenting to receive his forgiveness so that we do go out and feed the hungry and bridle our tongues. You know, all of that comes in together when we repent. Our prophet has said nothing is more liberating and ennobling or more crucial to our individual progression than his regular daily focus on repentance. Remember, repentance does not mean penitence, beating ourselves up. It means returning to Christ with our whole heart and our whole soul. It doesn't mean just stopping pornography or just stopping smoking or just stopping drug abuse. It means returning to God. I want to do thy will. I want to only do thy will. I want to serve thee. It's a beautiful, beautiful word if we go back to the Hebrew. Now he begins his discussion on the requirement of works. This is James chapter 2, verses 14, all the way to verse 26. But let's start with 14 in the CSV translation. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? Now, Christ himself talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if you remember back to Matthew chapter 7. But in verse 21, he refers to this and he says, we have got to apply these teachings. It's worthless if you're not. Moving on to verse 17, the Joseph Smith translation reads, faith, if it have not works, is dead. And in the NIV, it reads, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And so this idea that um, it's one thing to believe, but are we willing to pay offerings to help the poor, to help feed those who need money, to help faraway countries receive a temple? It's a beautiful principle that our actions are not just with our words, but they're also with um, our pocketbooks. We need to live the law of consecration. We need to give. I really love verse 24. This is in the NIV chapter two still. A person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So may we look to those around us who are in need and give and share and love. Verse 26 says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. That is a challenging point. You know, we are, are, all of our faith, all of my belief um, means nothing to God if I don't act on it. If I don't say, give me a missionary opportunity today. Help me to repent more sincerely. Help me to serve thee more. Help me to magnify my calling. Whatever 
were doing at that time. It's beautiful. Chapter three also talks a lot about taming the tongue. In fact, the first 12 verses all focus on taming our words, on controlling our tongue. It reads in the NIV in chapter three, verse one, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that those who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, in the KJV, they don't say many of you shouldn't be teachers. It said many of you should not be masters. But I went back and looked at the word masters in Greek, and it means an instructor acknowledged for their mastery of their field of learning. Now, in scripture, a Bible teacher is competent in theology. Now, that was interesting. That's obviously written by somebody without our faith tradition, because I think a teacher is one who is insensitive to the spirit and will teach by the spirit. He's saying you have got every word matters. It's not enough to say five or six nice things. We have learned, got to control every word, whether we're writing it or whether we're preaching it from a pulpit. If we are in a position to be teaching others, whether by profession or just because of a church service or a family nature or a neighborhood situation, we need to be honest in what we're saying. In fact, he talks about the tongue as something that's going to direct your boat. And he gives this beautiful analogy of the old Roman boats that were available at the time. So I've got a picture here of a recreation of an old Roman ship. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's able to control his whole body. That's chapter two, verse two in the BSB. He continues to go on to talk about controlling your tongue in verses seven to eight. I'll read from the NIV. All kind of animals have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. You know, he's saying, this is hard. You know, we, we think we're doing well and then we, we fall again. This is really hard. He talks about this beautiful imagery of a fig tree. I'll start again in verse 10 and 12 in chapter three. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Remember, brethren is brothers and sisters. Can a fig tree, my brethren, bring olive berries? He goes on and gives the imagery of a, of, a, of a fountain that brings in dirty water and clean water or salt water. You know, He's using these examples. How can we testify of Christ and then go home and yell at someone there, a roommate or a family member? You know, It's tragic. He's saying, no, we've got, to, we've got to take our religion seriously enough to actually change. Verse 13 reads, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show up by their good life by deeds done and humility that come from wisdom. Moving on now to James chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, echoes back to some of the things we read about in Paul's writing on the Spirit. It says, where envyings and strife is, there is confusion and every work evil. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. So do you recognize that from Paul's um, gifts of the Spirit or fruits of the Spirit, I mean? This gentleness and peacefulness that comes from the Spirit. We're not talking about a calm nature. We're talking about an abiding, deep peace that is a message from the Savior, that we need to be peacemakers to shed that life. James chapter four, verses one through six talks all against the worldliness, the wickedness of the world and attacks that desire for things of the world to be like other people, which plagues not only our youth, but many of us who are saturated in our cultures. So let's start with chapter four, verse one through three. This is the NIV. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Skipping down a little bit. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. But you do not have 
because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You know, are you asking for things for selfish reasons or to build God's kingdom? This is really powerful. He continues on in verse six. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. That's very consistent with Proverbs chapter three, verse 34 as well. James chapter four then moves on to talk about submitting our will to God's will. Let's read verse 10 of chapter four. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Sometimes I think I'm humble. Sometimes I think, oh, I'll do it your way. Okay, I'll listen. But there is something so deeply different about being contrite. You know, contrite means crushed, broken into pieces. When we are so contrite, I only want to do it your way. I only want to know where I'm supposed to put my foot tomorrow. I desperately need your guidance. When I am that humble and repentant, then the doors open and he will lift us up. Verse 11 and 12 in the NIV read, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. And then moving ahead to verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge. Who are you to judge your neighbor? He continues to attack their boasting in verse 16. You boast in your arrogant schemes. This is the NIV. All such boasting is evil. And then he asks in verse 17, if anyone, this is the NIV again, skipping ahead, knows the good and doesn't do it, it is a sin for him. So if we have the higher law, if we have been taught the laws of the gospel and we are not obeying them, we will be under a greater condemnation. It is sin. Chapter five now in the BSB translation reads, you who are rich, weep. Your riches have rotted. And skipping down to verse three, their corrosion will testify against you and consume your flesh like fire. The love of money or this idea that we want things or power or anything that is above God. If we don't have God as our first priority, we want the truck or the clothing or the job or the house or whatever it is. Um, it will it will canker in us and corrupt us because the source of that is the adversary. Learn that the adversary will always entice us with materialistic things and then just avoid them. It's part of our culture. It's hard. He gives so many warnings against the rich who oppress in chapter five, verses one through four. And he's pleading that we will pay more attention to the poor. He's pleading that we will live the law of consecration. Let's read verse three, starting halfway down in the NIV. You have hoarded wealth in these last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields, they're crying out against you. This is my world. This is the world I live in. Now, he talks about last days being his time. You know, last days in the New Testament meant their time. Um, but this is our world. We need to be more generous to those who need more. We need to be more generous to those who are mowing our fields, figuratively or literally. It's a beautiful message. Verse five just is attacking self-indulgence. They use words like wanton and other translations that refer to luxury or pleasure or wasteful. You know, do we really need that new pair of socks or that new car? Do we really need these things? You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. And I like to change that innocent one 
and put it in as a capital O, the innocent one. There is only one innocent one. Now, there are many around us who are innocent, who are, who are suffering across the world, even in our own neighborhoods. But the innocent one is the God whom we, our Savior, Jesus Christ, whom we offend when we don't take care of those around us. The next section of chapter five, James now talks about a theme that has been all through the New Testament from Christ's examples down through all of Paul's letters, the need to have patience in our suffering. And most of theirs was physical and most of ours is emotional or, or, or um, academic or cultural, but let us hold to the iron rod. He says in verse seven and eight in the NIV, be patient then brothers and sisters until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for his land? You too be patient and stand firm. I chose this Vincent van Gogh painting of a child running to his father in the, in the farm field because I thought of our Heavenly Father seeking us and patiently waiting for us. And he is plowing our soil and there's weeds around us. And sometimes they're choking us, but it's just a beautiful image. The law of the harvest is a great image in, in this section of James chapter 5. Verse 10 reads in the NIV, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets. And then in verse 11, he starts with the prophet Job, Job's perseverance. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Then he turns to praising the Lord and he calls us in verse 13 of chapter five. If any among you are afflicted, the NIV says who are troubled, let him pray. If any marry, let him sing songs. And continuing on in verse 14, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This is such a blessing that as part of the restoration, we have ordained priesthood holders who have these gifts where we can anoint and heal the sick. We also live in a day and age when the gifts of the Spirit are in full force and women and children can call upon the gift of healing through their faith. Not necessarily the same way that the elders do, but with great faith, the gift of healing is given. And I have so many examples in my own life of my children's examples, of my examples, when miraculous healings have been given from God. Perhaps the most amazing example that I can think of is Lucy Mack Smith. Before the church was organized, one of her daughters died. And through her faith and prayers in Jesus Christ, she raised that daughter from the dead. This is a powerful gift of God that through the gift of faith can be exercised when we pray in the name of the Lord. Chapter 5 verse 15 continues on. The prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven. Christ taught it in the New Testament as well. When he told people, thy sins are forgiven thee, or arise, pick up thy bed. Our bodies and our souls are um, work together in harmony. And anytime something is plaguing us physically, it's a good opportunity to see, should we change? Now, it doesn't mean that if you have a physical pain, you're a sinner. I'm not making that connection. But I am saying these trials physically can also be used to refine our spirituality and that the Lord will forgive us our sins as we come before him. 
Continuing on in James chapter 5, verse 16, it reads, Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of the righteous human availeth much. Well, that was my word human. It's, it's man in King James. But it refers to all. And I am a believer in prayer. I believe that more prayers make more difference. I am a, if we're asking for the right thing, if we're asking in faith to align our will with God's will. And not only do we pray for physical challenges and emotional and spiritual challenges, but we pray for other people. We pray that their burdens may be lightened, that the Lord will bless them. And I find when I pray for others, my prayers have even more power. And then he gives the example of the great prophet Elijah. And you remember when Elijah was up in the northern tribes during the time of King Ahab? This is 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19-ish. This is what James is referring to here in verse 17. Elijah was a human being. This is the NIV. Even as we are. But he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not. Skipping down to verse 18. He prayed and the heavens gave rain. That was that three and a half years when Jezebel was trying to get the priests of Baal around. I don't know if you remember that story, but James knew that story. And he's giving an example for the Christians to follow along that same example as that great prophet. Verse 19 and 20 in the NIV read, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Our missionary work, our reactivation work, our service, our, our service in the kingdom, our magnifying our callings as we are seeking to lead people to Christ every day, it covers our sins. Our Savior is so grateful for every effort extended. Those of you that are serving missions or have served or will serve, and we need more missionaries. Come, serve. And the Lord has promised your sins will be forgiven. And that brings us to the end of the book of James. And I would like to testify that I believe that this is a book of God, not just because it motivated Joseph Smith for the restoration, but because there are wonderful guidelines here that can change our lives for the better. Wonderful ways that, to teach us how we can be better servants of Jesus Christ, how we can draw closer to him, how we can become more holy. And our prophet is saying so many of the same things. If we follow this advice humbly on our knees and we learn to control our tongue and act on our faith, I believe we can create a better world. I believe we can create a better kingdom of God that will be prepared for our Savior's coming. I believe this advice is what we need right now in our life. And I pray that the Spirit of God will touch you this week as you study this great book of James. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.